This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 16, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who died this weekend, was not a libertarian, but his legacy will be in changing how students, scholars, even his fellow justices argue about the Constitution and its meaning. Cato Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies, Ilya Shapiro, comments. Justice Scalia is the most consequential jurist, certainly of my lifetime and probably uh, before that. Uh, He uh, bestrode the court like a colossus. Agree with him uh, or not, attention had to be paid. Uh, It's hard to imagine the Supreme Court without his looming presence, either literally inside the courtroom asking questions uh, or uh, his words uh, on the page. There's a whole book devoted to his dissents, Scalia dissents it's called. Uh, And uh, eventually uh, those dissents started turning uh, into more majority and concurring opinions. He's best known for uh, reviving or heralding the Renaissance of originalism and textualism. That is, uh, that the Constitution should be interpreted according to its original meaning, uh, not according to the policy preferences of judges, not according to how it evolves or how each generation re-ratifies it or whatever might be the case, but actually get out the dictionaries, look at the Federalist Papers, uh, look at what the, 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 the term equal protection means in 1868 at the ratification of the 14th Amendment, that sort of thing. Uh, and now it's, it's like we're all original. Uh, or at least we have to pay lip service to it. Uh, look, for example, to Justice uh, Sotomayor's testimony at her uh, confirmation hearing. No one thinks she's an originalist, but she had to talk that way. Uh, or the uh, Scalia's own uh, majority opinion, probably my favorite, uh, in Heller, the Second Amendment case, uh, confirming that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. The dissenting justices, led by Justice Stevens, battled on that ground. They disagreed with Scalia. Scalia's historical analysis, but they were all trying to do originalism. That's a very big deal. And probably even more on the statutory interpretation side, his textualism. Now, it, it shouldn't be surprising that when you interpret statutes, you should look at their text and really try hard uh, as a judge to figure out what that means and apply it to the case at hand. Believe it or not, in the 60s or 70s, that was not the leading uh, method, uh, so to speak, of interpreting statutes. Uh, sometimes, for example, uh, the statutory text uh, might at best, uh, uh, illuminate, uh, help you uh, buttress your arguments about what the purpose of the statute might be. It's uh, exactly backward. And there, certainly, Scalia has won the day, uh, because so many cases are statutory, and so many of those uh, are not high-button culture war issues or or what have you. Uh, That is the prevailing uh, method of statutory interpretation. He was less successful in terms of uh, his his constitutional analysis, although, as I said, uh, everyone now has to speak in originalist terms and really do that uh, hard uh, uh, historical uh, original analysis. Uh, Everybody's had to up their intellectual rigor. It's frankly surprising or should be surprising to some people the idea that closely examining the text and meaning of the Constitution was not at one point a popular thing to do when uh, making these kinds of high-level judgments about laws. That's why I wrote the piece for uh, Reason Magazine online about how uh, Antonin Scalia had such a big effect uh, on the libertarian legal movement. Now, you do not think of Scalia as a libertarian. I don't think anybody would, and of course, he wouldn't have uh, himself. Um, uh, 
but to the extent that the rule of law and constitutionalism are very important libertarian virtues, which I think they are, uh, as I just described, I think he, more than anyone else, uh, has worked hard uh, to put that back into uh, the central part of judging, especially uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, and on so many uh, uh, areas of law, uh, uh, expected ones like the Second Amendment uh, or the First Amendment, whether it be campaign finance or other areas, famously uh, uh, striking down a, uh, uh, the criminalization of flag burning. Uh, that was definitely against his policy preference. Um, uh, but also in areas where you might not expect a so-called law and order conservative to favor the libertarian side uh, in the criminal law. I know you'll be talking talking uh, to my colleague Tim Lynch about that, but on the Fourth Amendment, uh, the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause, uh, sentencing, um, throwing out criminal statutes that are too vague. Uh, Scalia, if, if what you really care about is constitutional criminal procedure, there is no better justice uh, than Antonin Scalia for you. So there's uh, a rich uh, legacy of, of libertarian uh, uh, legal analysis. Not everything, obviously. Uh, uh, I personally have uh, fierce disagreements with him over deference to administrative agencies or gay rights, uh, some other things. His, his faint-hearted originalism in certain respects, that is, that he made his peace with the New Deal and uh, unduly deferred, I think, to uh, the government in, in, in many ways. Uh, more broadly, his jurisprudence with respect to unenumerated rights, whether under the Ninth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, he's certainly uh, with uh, uh, a lot of legal conservatives in that regard. Uh, so he's certainly not perfect. He's certainly not even the most libertarian uh, justice, whether in result, that would probably be Kennedy, or in, uh, in theory, that would probably be uh, uh, Thomas. Uh, but still, uh, a monumental figure and certainly much more helpful than not to what uh, we legal eagles at Cato are trying to accomplish. You noted, uh, at least I saw on Twitter, you noted you, you, your favorite opinion of his was Heller and your least favorite, Rach. Right. I haven't mentioned Rach yet. This uh, is one of the rare instances where I think Scalia's policy preferences trumped his uh, legal analysis. Uh, Rach was the 2005 medical marijuana case where the court ruled six to three. Scalia's was not the swing vote. It was he wrote separately uh, to, to concur uh, that the federal government could regulate plants that you grow in your backyard for your own consumption. Terribly flawed ruling, I think. Um, leads to these weird debates that we're having now about uh, marijuana federalism and the relationship of state to federal power there. Uh, but I, uh, frankly, I think he simply uh, voted for the drug war over federalism there, and uh, uh, his fellow conservatives uh, did not agree with him. Uh, uh, so that that was certainly my least favorite. It's it's where the scales drop from my eyes uh, about Scalia generally, much like uh, NFIB versus Sebelius, the individual mandate Obamacare case was uh, where that happened uh, for me uh, with regard to uh, John Roberts. But in general, uh, Scalia's legacy will be pretty much compelling everyone to take a close look at the Constitution before rendering judgment. Let me explain it this way. Um, before he joined the court in 1986, constitutional law casebooks at law schools, including the leading law schools in the nation, would not contain the text of the Constitution in them. Slowly, uh, the Constitution migrated. It became you know, Appendix H or what have you. Uh, and now, as by the time I got to law school, it was uh, you know, at, the, at the very beginning. Uh, that he takes uh, uh, as much credit as anyone uh, for that development. Um, so we at Cato certainly uh, care 
uh, a lot about uh, taking constitutional text structure and history seriously, uh, and Nina Scalia uh, uh, helped that project along uh, immensely. And uh, you know, he did not shy away, obviously, uh, from making these arguments in every kind of venue, not just his judicial opinions. Uh, and he knew that he was speaking and writing not simply for legal experts, and so he is known for the verb and style. Uh, of uh, his opinions, letting the chips uh, fall where they may. There are few judges and justices uh, who uh, can be described that way. President Obama has 11 months left in office, and you know, presidential term is 48 months. Uh, why shouldn't he nominate somebody? This is actually a, a political question, not a legal or a constitutional one. Because, I mean, it's clear, you know, advise and consent of the Senate, the president shall nominate, and with advice and consent shall appoint. Right. Uh, I do not begrudge President Obama fulfilling his constitutional uh, responsibility to nominate someone. Um, at that point, the Senate can choose what it wants to do. The advise and consent clause is not uh, an obligation, does not impose a duty on the Senate to do any particular thing, whether it be to hold a hearing, to hold a vote, or, or do anything. That is in their considered judgment um, uh, about what they want to do. Now, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, and, and Charles Grassley, the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman, have both said that they will not consider any nominee. Nothing particular about any particular person that, uh, that Obama might nominate, but institutions they are going to defend their prerogative uh, to advise and consent uh, and leave it up to the people to decide uh, in the coming uh, election because, of course, President Obama was reelected in 2012. Then the Republicans won a huge win in the Senate in uh, 2014. Uh, in a polarized nation like ours with power, so much power centralized in Washington and a, a politicized Supreme Court in many ways, we can't escape this political debate. Uh, uh, in the way that I care about the rule of law and constitutionalism, given that this president has abused his authority in so many ways, I think the Republican majority is justified in taking the position that it has. Now, I'm not going to put money on it. Uh, I don't think you would be very successful in betting on uh, Republican senators to have spines in terms of upholding uh, constitutionalism in that way. Uh, but I hope to be pleasantly surprised. And I do think that uh, once the next election happens, if a Democrat is elected, then uh, I think the Senate should go ahead and, and uh, consider in due order, whether that means filibustering an outrageous nominee or confirming a moderate or, or what have you. Uh, they, don't have, uh, they won't have a leg to stand on. But otherwise, if it's a Republican, then he uh, or she, I suppose, uh, should have the opportunity to, uh, to nominate the, the justice for this very important position. Because if, if Scalia is, is replaced with, uh, with a progressive, that would shift the court uh, for decades. That's a very important thing uh, that outweighs uh, the minimal burden on the court's work that uh, having uh, uh, fewer than nine justices would have for nine or 11 or 15 months, whatever the case would be until the next confirmation. Ilya Shapiro is editor of the Cato Institute's annual Supreme Court Review. You can get your copy of the most recent edition at cato.org.